At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. So welcome to this drug science podcast. I'm delighted to say that tonight I am speaking with Dennis McKenna, who is one of the world's leading, maybe the world's leading, ethnopharmacologist. He's joined me from uh, British Columbia in Canada, and he's going to share with us his 50 years experience of working in this field. I think you'll find it fascinating. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you, Dr. Nutt. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been following your work for a while, and I very much admire you and what you've been doing. You're a change maker. Um, thank you for the nice words. I, I don't know if I'm the most uh, foremost ethnopharmacologist, but I guess I can legitimately claim to be a ethnopharmacologist, and we could get into whatever that means. Well, that's ex- that's a great place to start, Dennis. What is an ethnopharmacologist? Well, the, co- the there's a kind of a, a tortured definition of it, but it kind of makes sense. Uh, ethnopharmacology is the interdisciplinary scientific investigation of natural biologically active substances used or observed by humans in indigenous societies. And and that's a many-part definition, but it kind of covers the waterfront in the sense that, you know, if we didn't restrict it to indigenous or traditional societies, then everything we do with respect to pharmacology would Mm -hmm. be ethno because, you know, we're humans doing this. So that's one point, that the focus is on traditional or indigenous use, not not modern use. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that, you know, uh, ethnopharmacology is not necessarily confined to medicines, nor is it confined to plants or fungi or any of that. It can be from any source, and it's not necessarily about biologically active substances that people ingest. You know, for example, arrow poisons is totally a legitimate area of inquiry for ethnopharmacology. So it has to do with humans in traditional societies using biologically active substances for medicines, poisons, even foods, nutritional, and that kind of thing. And that's why Mm -hmm. it's such a tortured definition. Actually, that comes from Bo Homestead, um, who you may be familiar with, or maybe not. He was, you know, the old school. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I lifted that definition from him. It's a complicated definition. Maybe you should help us by start telling us how you got into this and what your pathway has been, because I gather you've been doing it for uh, about 50 years. 
Yes, I have, actually. Uh, well, I grew up in the 60s and was a teenager during those those years when the counterculture was on the rise and everyone was excited about LSD and other psychedelics. But LSD was kind of the, the focus of the attention. My brother, Terrence, also well-known, he was four years older than me. And he was in Berkeley while I was stuck in Colorado in high school. But he was a a major influence. We were both fascinated with psychedelics. And not so much LSD. What we were fascinated by was uh, DMT, which was very rare in those days, but seemed to be an order of magnitude weirder and more interesting in some ways mm -hmm. than LSD. But that's another story. And, at the age of 18, I encountered two books, one of which was uh, the first edition of Carlos Castaneda's book, The Teachings of Don Juan, which my brother gave to me for my 18th birthday. And uh, even though I think there's a consensus that that book is much of it as fiction, or at least certainly loosely associated with the truth, and yet... For me, I didn't know that at the time. And what, mm. what that book gave to me was a perspective that there is an ethnographic and historical context for psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And the other book that came onto my radar at the same time or about the same time, I'm not sure how I acquired it, but it was a proceedings of a symposium that was held in 1967 sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health. It was, and it was called the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. And it was a private conference, even though government sponsored, but it was, it was a closed conference, but that book was issued. So those two things, those two books really influenced me to go into this, uh, this profession. And then actually, 50 years later, in 2017, I staged a symposium, a 50th anniversary symposium of that original symposium and uh, in, in England at, at Tyringham Hall. And we published uh, the proceedings of the 2017 symposium and also we reprinted the 1967 symposium. The, the 2017 symposium, because of availability of live streaming and all the technology that we have now, that was watched by 75,000 people. So I was very happy that a lot more people in the world know what ethnopharmacology means now. <laughs> yeah. 50 years is a, is a great time to, to, to reflect backwards. I mean, what, what have been the major changes you've seen in the 50 years, I mean, apart from greater interest? <laughs> Amazing changes. And even discoveries that were not really imagined in the 67 conference. Originally, the idea with that conference was that there was going to be follow-up symposia every 10 years because ethnopharmacology is an active field. Well, you know, the war on drugs came along. The U.S. <laughs> government became embarrassed that they had anything to do with this. So it never happened. And I just felt like within 50 years, there have been significant discoveries and we wanted to, we wanted to address those. What was discussed in the, in the 2017 symposium, we, we had sections on uh, Kratom, 
which is not exactly a psychedelic, but it's a, it's a very interesting plant. Uh, we had maybe too much on ayahuasca. Well, we had excellent, you know, ayahuasca was not unknown, at, you know, in the 70s, but we know a lot more about what its chemistry was. You know, it was it was a significant review of the progress in the last 50 years. So I was happy to be able to contribute to that and, and uh, play a role in organizing that. I think it's raised awareness of the field. You're an 18 year old. You've got this book from your uh, your brother, and you've read this conference proceedings. Yes. Uh, what did you do then? Did you go off to university to study this, or, or how did yes, you? How did yes, yes. Well, develop? after that, at uh, 18, then I went into undergraduate. Uh, I was an undergraduate at the University of Colorado, and uh, I majored in what they call distributed studies. What I wanted to do was put together a program similar to ethnopharmacology or ethnobotany. Well, there was no such thing, you know. So I, I decided to study botany and chemistry and anthropology. And eventually I ended up taking quite a lot of courses in philosophy of science as well, which I never regretted. I felt like that was very useful to my education. So then I, it I ended up going to the University of Hawaii for my master's degree. I got a forestry grant from the Department of Forestry in Hawaii, and they said, well, we, uh, we don't care what you study as long as it's Hawaiian and as long as it's a tree. <laughs> and I thought, great, I'll study acacias because two or three important tree species in Hawaii are acacias. And acacias are well known for their content of tryptamines. There are many, many species in that genus that contain significant uh -huh. amounts of tryptamines. I thought I would study the alkaloids of the Hawaiian acacias and be you know, kind of a phytochemical survey. Turns out the Hawaiian acacias don't make any alkaloids. <laughs> so I ended up studying something. That I ended up studying acacias, but I studied non-protein amino acids, which were also interesting as sort of biochemical markers. Then when I finished my master's at University of Hawaii, I ended up coming to the University of British Columbia for my graduate work. And I was originally going to work on psilocybin. I, I did for about a year. I worked on the objective was to study the enzymes and the genetic regulation of psilocybin biosynthesis. To be honest, I was failing fungal genetics, which is an incredibly complicated field. And then my supervisor, Neil Towers, kind of threw me a, a, a life rope. He said, well, maybe you'd like to go to Peru. I have some extra money in the grants. I said, well, my bags are packed. When do we go? <laughs> and so I shifted my whole focus to ayahuasca. So that was the direction I ended up going in, looking at both the pharmacology and the many admixture plants used with uh, with ayahuasca. You know, you, you know, it's a combination of uh, plants containing MAO inhibitors, namely beta-carbolines, other plants containing DMT. And of course, the beta-carbolines protect the DMT, and so it's orally active. And that, that, was the, that was the whole rationale, was to explore this mechanism of oral activity. Ayahuasca is, of course, world famous. Everyone's heard of it. But there was another group of indigenous uh, psychedelics derived from Varola, which is a genus of trees 
that has sap very, very high in the tryptamines. And it's used throughout the Amazon mm -hmm. as a snuff because of this oral activity. Oh, yeah. There was a Witoto preparation called Ukuhe that was orally active. And I wanted to compare the Ukuhe with ayahuasca, completely different botanical sources, but similar uh, chemistry and similar mechanisms of action. So that's what my thesis ended up being about. But sorry, just to be clear about the, 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 the tree derived, does it contain its own monoamine oxidase inhibitor? I, I wasn't familiar with this. Well, that was the question. Or do you it, have to mix it? Yeah, them? that was the question. The mechanism of action for ayahuasca was pretty clear. You know, although I did do the bioassays, I did the uh, in vitro assays and so on, and validated that that was what was going on. And then the idea was with the kuhe, are there beta carbolines in there, or are there something else that is inhibiting MAO? I never really did get that figured out. But what I did find out is that essentially the, the tryptamines were, were self-potentiating. The, the, the extracts usually contained combinations of DMT and 5-methoxy-DMT. And if you eat enough 5-methoxy-DMT, it doesn't really require an MAO inhibitor. And in my... Right. You know, in my bioassay work, I found if I took these extracts and removed the tryptamines, then it lost MAO activity. So the best I could figure out is that it was the tryptamines that were kind of self-potentiating themselves in that preparation. I see. You know, and another aspect of that work is that this was this was dying knowledge. You know, the 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 curanderos that we interfaced with, they were they were happy to prepare sample for us, various samples, but they they all pretty much have said, this is something my grandfathers did. This is something my fathers did. I don't really remember how they did it, but I'll give it a shot. I mean, how hard was it to, to get funding in those days? Ten years, about ten years after I got my degree, I got an opportunity to participate in a biomedical study of ayahuasca that was uh, initiated by one of the Brazilian churches, the, the UDV. For that particular project, I was able to get funding from private sources, uh, partly through the Hefter Research Institute, which was just mm -hmm. starting at that time. And then my brother had started a, a nonprofit called Botanical Dimensions. Mm -hmm. And the idea of Botanical Dimensions was to put uh, a gene bank, uh, essentially an ethnobotanical garden of these psychoactive species in Hawaii. And through those channels, I was able to get funding uh, for for this project. And, but you were in a university, were you? Was an, you were developing an academic career on in this rather weird topic. That must must have been challenging. I waited till I had exactly. I had an academic exactly. career before I started. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it was definitely challenging because here I'd worked, uh, if you count the eight years or if you count the master's degree in Hawaii and the work in British Columbia, another so eight years altogether to get my PhD. And then I come out with this PhD in this, in this not only interdisciplinary, but quite controversial area, you know, not a great job move, not a great career move if I'm looking for a job. And I was, um, you know, I finished my, my PhD and 
I went back to the States because, uh, you know, the uh, Canadian government said, well, now that we now that we've subsidized your education, you have to go back to your third world country and help the people, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I went back and I started doing a, what seemed like an endless series of postdocs. I ended up working on uh, selenium as an anti-cancer okay. agent. And uh, the only part of my skills that were relevant was the fact that I knew sterile technique and I knew how to grow fungi in in culture, and that wasn't because of anything I learned in school. That was because I taught myself how to grow mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> but after that, I ended up going to National Institute of Mental Health. I got a fellowship in the Laboratory of Clinical Pharmacology. So that was in, in Bethesda, in Maryland? In Bethesda, Maryland, yeah. I spent two years working under Dr. Juan Saavedra, he worked under Julius Axelrod. He and Axelrod were the first people to study endogenous DMT. They reported mm -hmm. on the occurrence of DMT in, in rabbit's lung, and I was I was familiar with that work. So here I am working at my first postdoc in San Diego. And you know, in those days, they used to request, if you wanted a paper, you sent a postcard, mm -hmm. pre electronic. Yeah, I remember Got those a days. postcard requesting my publications about ayahuasca uh, from Dr. Juan Saavedra. I wrote back and I said, uh, I'm familiar with your work. Is there any, and I'm very interested in this area, is there any way I could potentially come work with you? And he wrote back a very nice letter, and he said, well, there is a program called the Pharmacology Research Associate Traineeship, or Pratt Fellowship, <laughs> and it's for people who are not specialists in pharmacology or neuroscience, but it's a way to get them an entry point. And, uh, and I was accepted into the program. After I did that postdoc, I ended up working with uh, Steve Peruka at Stanford. And at that time, the uh, MDMA neurotoxicity issue was very active and people were looking into that and, and Dr. Peruka was investigating that. And one of the reasons that he decided to leave Stanford and go work for Genentech is that he, he was not awarded tenure mm -hmm over a controversial thing that happened, which he did a survey of Stanford undergraduates about their uses of MDMA. And it was connection with the yeah, concern yeah. about neurotoxicity yeah, and so yeah. on. And he reported that about 30% of undergraduates at Stanford were using MDMA or had used it. That was really not the politically correct thing to do. And you're familiar yourself with what happens oh, when indeed. you come, <laughs> come a cropper with the powers that be. So Steve said, you know, you, I'm not going to be here. I, you've got to find something else to do. You have to, it's about time you look for a real mm, job. Mm, and at yes. the same time, about that time, there was a new company starting up in the Bay Area called Shaman Pharmaceuticals. And the idea with the shaman's mission was ethnobotany-driven drug discovery. And I interviewed and I became, and my job title was Director of Ethnopharmacology. I just had completed these, these two postdocs at Stanford and NIH, so I was armed with a lot of the techniques for 
receptor binding and all that. So I developed their uh, receptor lab and we were screening plant extracts for all sorts of activity, you know, but primarily analgesic activity. It's quite a transition from uh, from working with traditional plants and traditional peoples to more what you might call classic neuropharmacological screening for commercial purposes. That must have been an interesting challenge for you. Having, I suppose, at least you saw both sides of the coin. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I had the skills which were very, uh, very fresh and kind of cutting edge of what was the state of the art at the time that could be applied to the screening of these plant extracts. So that's what we did. And we screened a, a bunch of things. One of the plants that we screened was uh, Salvia divinorum. Mm-hmm. The chemistry of that, of course, they're very select. The Salvinorin A is extremely selective kappa opiate agonist. And we were, I was running these extracts through all the known opiate receptors. We had we had assays set up for all those things. And I just kept scratching my head. I, I mean, I was getting incredible activity at all of the opiate receptors. And I thought, this can't be right. It can't be this potent. It was not understood it, what it was at the time, what the pharmacology was. and But then years later, Brian Roth uh, worked it all out. But I reported my results on these binding assays to the... Uh, you know, to the upstairs management, you know, my supervisors in, in what amounted to the pharmacology department. And they said, well, it doesn't matter anyway, because we don't want to discover another morphine. Well, of course, it wasn't. But anyway, we won't get into that. No, let's not go there. It's, <laughs> it's been a hard, the kappa receptor has been a very tough one to turn into medicine. So very you're probably difficult. best to give up on it. Very difficult, Yeah. So I, I worked there for about a year and a half, and I was offered a job at uh, Aveda, which is a cosmetics company. And they were interested in, in new ingredients from the rainforest to put into their cosmetics. So they sent me to Brazil, you know, to look for some of these plants. While all this was going on, I was, I was developing this plot to go down there and do this study with the UDV. So when I was supposed to be in the rainforest collecting plants, I was actually in Manaus Uh running this study (laughs) with my colleagues. Many publications resulted from that. We did some interesting work, and some of it, you know, really still needs to be followed up. One of the questions that we naively ask in this project is, is there any biochemical marker? Is there anything that makes ayahuasca drinkers different than ayahuasca non-drinkers the non-drinkers is there some some aspect of their neuropharmacology or anything we we asked a very vague question but something came up as we evaluated the samples when we did the study we took blood samples we were evaluating uh, platelets as as you know platelets are a often a peripheral marker of what's going on in the central mm-hmm. nervous system. And we had, mm-hmm. we found this uh, anomalous result, which is that the, the drinkers of ayahuasca had an elevated titer, an elevated abundance of the uh, serotonin transporters. 
And it's, it was a persistent thing. It wasn't an artifact of taking ayahuasca. These, we were, these were subjects that were, uh, you know, they went through a washout period. So it wasn't a residual effect. It was apparently a persistent, elevated upregulation of the serotonin transporters. And we sort of thought, well, what does that mean? That's, that's interesting. But what does it mean? And it actually didn't take too long to find out there was a whole literature about pathological deficits in the transporters associated with things like suicidality and yes, yes, you know, depression and even homicidal behavior, exactly. addictive behavior, all of these things. There's a, you know, I don't know how current this work is, but at that time, deficits in the in the uh, transporters, not only serotonin, but also the other monoamines was being linked to these pathologies. So we thought, well, that's very interesting that ayahuasca apparently reverses this because in our psychological screening that we did of these subjects, it was a textbook case. I mean, it was too, almost too good to believe because all of the subjects in our UDV study were people who had joined uh, the UDV in a state of life crisis. And it usually had to do with addiction, alcohol addiction primarily, and and other kinds of just dysfunctionalities like depression, like suicidal uh, ideation and this kind of thought. They all pretty much told the same stories. We did extensive um uh, life story interviews with them, you know, uh, structured psychiatric life story interviews. My colleague, Dr. Grobe, was in working on this project. He was the PI. Yeah, yeah. And they all told the same story, that they came to the, uh, join the UDV, usually because a friend had recommended it, and they were in a state of life crisis, and they felt that their experiences were not only terrified initially, but redemptive in the sense that they they said they could see the way they were headed. They could see the direction of their life. And it was like a big wake-up call that you have to change. And they took that lesson to heart. Most of the people, or at least all the ones that we interviewed, have been at least 10 years in the UDV, and some have been in the sect for 30 or 40 years, and they all felt that it was two things that kept them on track. You know, one was the medicine, the tea, as they called it, and the other one was the supportive environment of the UDV. It's a very uh, nurturing kind of kind of religion. You know, I used to kid them. I used to say, "You guys are like psychedelic Mormons or something." <laughs> you know, you're in the sense that Mormons are also a very community-oriented kind yes, of religion, and, and that's that's what the UDV was. But isn't that what psychedelics do to some extent? <laughs> Don't they bond people to others and, and, to, and to the world? In a, Indeed. In a... Well, I think, I think psychedelics play roles in a lot of these religions that they haven't really uh, acknowledged, even Christianity. You know, there's, there's good... Good evidence, or certainly suggestive evidence, that they that mushrooms may have played a role in Christianity. I mean, there's some very peculiar iconography in some of these uh, stained glass mm -hmm. windows and this sort of thing. So uh, that's a whole area yeah, indeed, to be indeed. explored. Um, 
not by me. <laughs> so let's let's fast forward now. You know, thirty years. So okay. What are you working on at present? Well, right now, so I I did that work, and then um, um, I I since I couldn't get a job in academia, I became a uh, more or less a consultant for the natural products industry. Then my brother got sick in 1999, and with uh, terminal brain cancer with glioblastoma, I basically dropped everything, and I devoted that year to being there for him. And after he passed on, there was uh, there was nothing. You know, I was broke. I couldn't do consulting anymore because you know when you're a consultant, if you don't do it, it dries up. And then, again, another lucky break. I was invited to uh, join the Center for Spirituality and Healing at the University of Minnesota. I used to tell people it's not a New Age cult. It's actually, it just sounds like one. It's uh, it's actually the complementary medicine program. And they wanted someone to, to teach ethnobotany. I, I started in 2000, and I, I terminated it in 2017. So I ended up working teaching ethnopharmacology, uh, another course called Botanical Medicines in, in Healthcare, and another lovely uh, field course every January taught in Hawaii called Plants and Human Affairs. And uh, that was <laughs> great. I really enjoyed that, and I continue to do that. Especially in January. Yeah. Not a bad trip to take if if you live in Minnesota and want to go good, to good call, good call that one. Right, it was an intercession course, <laughs> so so I taught that for for several years and really enjoyed that. And then maybe this is worth mentioning: in in two thousand four, I got a grant from the Stanley Medical Research Association, uh, Stanley Medical Research Institute. And they were interested in natural products. They were looking for new, potentially new medications to treat positive symptoms of schizophrenia. They contacted me and said, well, we're looking into Chinese traditional medicines as potentially new medications for schizophrenia, and we have nothing going on in South America. Would you potentially be interested in applying for a grant? And I said, well, sure, why not? That was a great project. We didn't find the medication for schizophrenia, but what it did let me do was uh, renew all my connections in Peru that I had from mm. years before. And we collected about 150 species of plants that basically had ethnomedical uses that looked like they might be psychoactive or even specific for mental illness. The plants that uh, sort of rose to the to the surface in this screening project, they were not novel compounds. They were from plants uh, in the Apocynaceae family that had been looked at to some extent in terms of their phytochemistry. So they contained these complex indole alkaloids, but we didn't have the bioassays to uh, to follow up, and so that's where the work has has sort of. I wouldn't say stopped, but it hasn't been advanced. Well, it may be that the um, the rising interest in, I mean, a whole slew of psychedelically oriented 
companies being set up, maybe they could broaden their uh, remit a bit and get back into some ethnopolitics. I would, I would like to. And actually, British Columbia seems to be a, fer- a very fertile ground for incubating these various psychedelic-oriented startup companies. And, you know, I mean, they're cropping up like mushrooms all over the place. <laughs> they all have... A lot of them have an orientation to mushrooms. It's almost the, and, and that's great. I think psilocybin is just about the perfect clinical psychedelic, but it's not the only one in the universe. And there is still right. great potential, I think, to find new psychedelics in nature that are, you know, we, we think of sort of the top pantheon. Uh, ayahuasca, mushrooms, uh, iboga, and so on. But there are undiscovered psychedelics out there, I'm convinced, and uh, would be worth going after. Yeah, and it may be the commercial imperative, the the, the, the ability to get something patented. Exactly, exactly. And a lot of these companies, they, I mean, psilocybin, it's hard to patent psilocybin. It's been in the public domain for so long. You might patent something about the synthesis of it. A lot of companies are mm. looking at formulations, and I think this uh, whole interest in microdosing is in some ways it's a way to try to come up with a patentable uh, formulation. But I have been talking to several of these companies, and I'm saying if you would, if you would consider investing in drug discovery, we can find new psychedelics that nobody knows about, structurally novel psychedelics. Well, good for you, yeah. And I, I hope they're going to keep, take you on as a consultant. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I hope I hope something comes of it. What I would like to do I, is leverage my connections uh, at the university in, in Iquitos, Peru, the, the National University mm-hmm. of the Amazon. All of those connections going back to 1981, those folks are still there on the infrastructure for, for collecting plants and, and all that is there it needs to be married with the capability to do chemistry and do you know pharmacognosy and, and phytochemistry on these things you're the man to do it dennis you're the man to you're the man to bring them together there's no doubt about well that. i hope so but i don't know i'm not getting any younger david that's the problem i feel like uh, there's so much to do so much that i still want to do well one of the things i hear you you've been doing is uh, you've been you've been developing some tribute to to your brother? Tell us a bit about that, and tell us also about about oh yes. how you yeah. you know his uh, his very interesting insights and how what you think of them and how you they influence your thinking. Yes, I we we've been doing a tribute to Terence that's been a virtual event. It's connected with a nonprofit that I founded about a year ago called the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy. The idea is to create a platform for psychedelic education, either online or maybe eventually a physical location in South America. That is an aspiration. I don't know if it'll ever happen. But in connection with the Academy, we, we were going to do two big symposia in San Francisco at the beginning of April. Then everything got canceled. So the 3rd of April was the 20th anniversary of my my brother's uh, passing and so we were, we had this idea so we decided to pivot and do it online which we did we did actually four installments and basically me talking to old friends of Terence 
Mm. I'll send you all the links. They're, they're, That's very helpful. If you could, I, I'll promote them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I will tweet about this. And they're we'll they're open the access. They're free. Anyone can, uh, can look at those things. And it turned out to be we had 8,500 people sign up for this series. Uh, I'll, I'll send you... Uh, send you a link to the website and send you these these other links and you can put those out if you like. I would really appreciate Please it. Please do that. Yes. Before we stop, I've got to talk to you about this uh, this La Charrera experience, um, which you've talked about. Can, <laughs> could you like to share that yeah, with us? Yeah, well, yeah, the market, the La Charrera experience is uh, so hard to explain. You know, it's it's hard really to describe what went on. It's all discussed in great detail in my my memoir, the the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. <laughs> but but roughly, so here here's the backstory to that. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, my brother and I were obsessed with DMT yes, back yes. in the sixties, and yes. we felt that. It was just an order of magnitude more interesting than LSD, and, and but DMT was frustrating because you can only spend about ten minutes, you know, in in that place, and you don't come back with much except a sense of something really astonishing just happened, you know. So we were looking for something that would prolong the experience. And uh, that's why we got interested in this Witoto drug. We didn't know at the time, nobody knew around 1971, that that's what ayahuasca was. Ayahuasca was basically a orally active form of DMT. The role of the admixture plants was not well understood. But so we went for this one, this, this Ukuhe, and that's what took us to La Chirera, because that was the ancestral home of the Witoto. Well, when we got to La Chirera, we had been cautioned by an anthropologist that we had encountered on the way. And he said, you can't just go in there and start talking about Ukuhe. This is like big shamanic magic. They will not be happy for these crazy hippies. to, to And we definitely looked the part at the time you know, <laughs> to wander in this village and start talking about Ukuhe. You need to be very careful. You know, we thought, okay, all right, we will be careful. But so when we got to La Chirera, it turns out that, or it turned out that it was a rainy season and there had been pasture cleared around this little mission village of La Chirera, maybe 200 acres or so of, of pastures with cattle and uh, mushrooms growing out of every cow pie, basically. So we... Uh, we knew what they were. We had absolutely no no uh, experience with them, but we knew from our homework what they were. And we kind of had a very cavalier attitude toward them. We thought, well, this will be this will be great. We can enjoy these while we're waiting for the real secret to show up. Well, the mushrooms very quickly made it clear that they were the real secret. <laughs> <laughs> and they yes. were what we'd come for and in fact uh if you think about it you know psilocin is really dmt in an orally active form i mean yeah, it is the true. perfect yeah. orally yeah. active form yeah. of dmt it's a pro drug isn't it yeah pro yeah and we started eating these things in a in a recreational or fairly thoughtless manner because they seemed so friendly 
and then they started downloading information uh, that was really uh, out of left field and and instructions how to do what i'm not sure but <laughs> essentially uh turn ourselves into a ufo i'm i'm not sure well that didn't work but that was uh that was the experiment at la Chirera. were you at were you at breaking convention in 2017 were you there yeah, i chance? was there i was there in a, yes yeah but it was okay. a, such so huge and so many things going on in parallel yeah, in fact, I mean, I I knew you were there, but I didn't see you. I mean, it's. Uh... I I gave a talk, I gave a talk there called the experiment at La Chirera, psychotic break, shamanic initiation, or alien encounter. <laughs> and I was kind of arguing that maybe this was an alien encounter. I mean, we certainly thought it was at the time. It is interesting, isn't it? Why why DMT doesn't leave these more enduring sense of change and understanding and insight that LSD does. You think it is because it's just so short acting? It's short acting. Yeah. Which is one reason I think these uh these these experiments going on now, I think I think with Robin Carhart Harris and Chris Timmerman on the uh extended DMT state, which you're involved with, right? You're you're Yes, that's true. I'm involved with, with it. <laughs> I'm trying to make sure the UFOs don't steal them away. Yeah, we have to be careful about these things. In, no, we know. have no. Indeed, indeed, these are powerful drugs, and you know, it's um, definitely. I mean, the field has moved on a lot, but there's still. I keep telling everyone that um, just because there's not a lot of public criticism of what we're doing doesn't mean that the public is supporting, and certainly not some of the. There are aspects of the media, I'm sure, who would be delighted for something to go wrong one of our experimental subjects to have a bad response and they would then swing the pendulum back and try to crush it all. So it's, we're still very, it's still in the infancy, the, 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 right, the psychedelic right. renaissance. But as a pharmacologist, David, my question for you is, is it really necessary to extend the DMT state or does psilocin do that? I mean, I mean, at high doses, the phenomenology of psilocin is very much like DMT. I mean, the reality is that there are commercial interests in trying to do that because psilocybin, as you pointed out, is very hard to get any kind of patents. And so we're, so people are seeing DMT as an alternative and you know, maybe a slow release or a slow infusion of DMT could be commercially viable. I mean, that, that's the driver. I, mean, I think from our, my perspective as a neuroscientist, it, the, the work that Chris has done already, Timmermans, is... And we're actually going to have a podcast on that shortly, but um, that's shown oh, yeah. quite clearly that the fragmentation of uh, certainly EEG fragmentation you see uh, desynchrony with uh, with DMT is profound, but very similar to that with LSD and with uh, psilocybin. Right. You know, the two way receptor does seem to do the same thing, regardless of what agonist stimulates it, which of course is what you predict as a pharmacologist. Uh huh. Uh huh. And and it seems that. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for the research. I think I think we should support the research, even if it doesn't result in the eventual clinical application. It, it's fundamental to understanding the nature of consciousness. I know? totally I, agree I with you. That's really where these medicines are. That's that's their promise, you know. So I'm in favor of that. I'm, I'm not sure this will ever result in a clinical application, but it doesn't really matter. It's worth doing. Exactly. And actually, what's fascinating about your just that you know you're, I mean, one of the people might say, well, why study 
Amazonian or Brazilian churches that use you know strange psychedelic drinks. But in fact, the reality is those those studies have given people like me a lot of confidence that regular use of these substances is certainly safe and mm-hmm. even if it's not necessarily you can't prove it's beneficial at least and that that was quite influential when we were getting permission from the our government our regulators to do the first psilocybin imaging study oh yeah we argued that you know the the, the historic experience shows these are safe generally safe and uh, and that helps sway them because, of course, to do the full toxicology that normally you'd have to do for a pharmaceutical was way outside our budget. Right. Well, the yeah, the the, the centuries of indigenous use uh, testifies to the Absolutely. fact that they're at least not toxic. And, and you know, when we try to integrate them into a clinical context, uh, maybe there are some issues. But you know, really, the significance of the of the UDV study that we did in the early 90s was not only did it raise uh, questions about this persistent upregulation of the 5-HT transporters, which I'd be interested to hear what you, if that has any significance, but that seemed to be a marker that was directly correlated to the uh, reversal of these deficits. I, I don't say it's causative. But no, I mean, it's been reported in other conditions. Like, I mean, that it seems if when people fall in love, those uh, sites are great as well. So it may be a marker of a, a sense of, of tranquility or well-being or of harmony. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and it, of course, the challenge is how, how would a platelet, which comes out of the marrow, you know, how would that change in relationship to your subjective state? And it may, it's not implausible, it's driving it. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not obviously how it could drive central effects, but it's not implausible because it may be that if whatever causes the upregulation in the periphery could cause the upregulation in the brain. Well, it, it is a, it's a central nervous system effect. We were able to establish that. I mean, we were looking at platelets for screening them against a number of receptors because that's a peripheral marker, supposedly, or at least at the time, of changes in the central nervous system. But then one of our one of the people involved in the study, uh, Jace Calloway, for various reasons we thought that the uh, the agent that was causing this prolonged elevation was probably tetrahydroharmine, one of the uh, ayahuasca alkaloids. And he he returned to his lab. He had access to, I expect, imaging technology in his lab. Yep. So he tried it out of himself. He started taking uh, tetrahydroharmine, and then he could actually do SPECT scans on, on his own brain and trace, you know, yep. measure yep. this elevation in the transporters. And then when he ceased taking it, it you know, it faded away after a couple of weeks and so it was a transient effect but uh, interestingly the the udv uh they take it about every two weeks so maybe uh, in the use uh you know maybe intuitively they understand you need to top Indeed. up the tanks about every two weeks and that's what's very interesting because one of the big challenges for us then is in terms of our depression studies is we get powerful effects from a, a single strong um, psilocybin trip. But in the majority of people, this wears off over a period of weeks or months. It will be really wonderful to find some kind of way of maintaining that. And maybe, maybe a fortnightly dose of ayahuasca would be a sensible way forward. 
Yeah. Or even potentially, it doesn't have to be ayahuasca. It could be, I mean, I, I think it'd be very interesting uh, to do a study with just tetrahydroharmine, which you wouldn't perceive much of a psychoactive effect, but with the with the imaging tools that you have available, you could actually take a closer look at this. Because we never really looked into this anymore. I mean, we reported the effect, and there's been no follow-up as far as I know. So if you have uh, somebody interested, I, I think this would be a good area to explore. Again, you'd run into the same problem if the ethics committee would say, well, you know, what's the safety of tetrahydroharmony? You know, but you could argue that if, if it's something that's been used for, for centuries in indigenous Brazilian populations, it probably is safe. Do you have any yeah. idea what the dose is? Send me the info because we can talk about the dosing. And that's, but let's not get too technical because we've, uh, we've talked for a very long time. And I, I, I just, right. I just want, want you, I want you to reflect just for the last few minutes about how you see, you must be pleased to see that your home state, well, at least Denver is allowing the mushrooms to, to grow again. And Oakland, are you pleased by these, uh, these movements to sort of liberate plants for human use? Yes. Yeah, I am. I am pleased by that, particularly these decriminalization movements, you know, are a very hopeful sign. Uh, for one thing, I the very idea that any of these plants should ever be criminalized is absurd. I mean, you can't criminalize a plant, you know, they are not criminals. The people who criminalize them may be criminals, but the plants <laughs> aren't. So we indeed, need to, indeed. you know, make that conversation clear. And, and you know, like everything, it's complicated. I mean, I, the Native American church has just issued a statement saying, we don't want to be part of this. We, want to, we don't want you to say peyote is one of the ones that should be decriminalized because, uh, really? you know, it's protecting criminalization was protecting it and it's under a lot of environmental you know pressure due to over harvesting oh i see yes of course same issues result from ayahuasca i say that is fine that's worth a conversation but that we should put forth the notion that no plant is criminal and that people have the right to form symbiotic relationships with plants Dennis, it's been wonderful talking to you. It's, uh, we could have talked for a lot more, and maybe at some point we'll get you back. Thank you. But thanks very much indeed. I would love, I would love to come back. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, great. Let's let's keep in touch. Let's absolutely do that. All right. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. I hope you didn't mind two old men reminiscing about pharmacology, plants, science, etc. It's one of the a whole series of podcasts which Drug Science is putting out. Follow me on Twitter, Prof. David Nutt. Follow Drug Science on Twitter. And hopefully, if you enjoy what we're doing, uh, join the Drug Science community and, uh, and support our initiatives, both in education and in policy change, by uh, becoming one of us. Thank you for listening. Thank you.